0: J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards.
1: Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. So at this point, if I see President Trump on Fifth Avenue, I'm crossing the street. The lead starts right now. President Trump's former chief of staff unloading, saying working for him was a killer and that his request for dirt on Biden from Ukraine was illegal. What was General Kelly's last straw? He's trashing Trump, throwing around millions, trying to become a cool meme, but Mike Bloomberg's surge is also coming with serious questions about his record. Plus, Rush Limbaugh, President Trump's most recent Medal of Freedom recipient, says that manly President Trump will have fun with Pete Buttigieg because Buttigieg is gay and has a husband. You can try to take a guess which one of these three guys volunteered to serve in the military in a war zone. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. We begin today with the politics lead, with President Trump continuing on his post-impeachment campaign to throw caution to the wind and elbows to his enemies. Firing officials who testified against him, attacking the faith of folks who voted against him, smearing judges and prosecutors and anyone who may question him. The president is today targeting his former chief of staff, retired Marine General John Kelly, after Kelly told an audience in New Jersey that it was, quote, a killer to work for President Trump. And Kelly insisted that Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Vindman was right to be concerned and to report President Trump's call with Ukraine's President Zelensky, which deviated from years of U.S. policy and Kelly considers illegal. As CNN's Caitlin Collins reports, Kelly may have been motivated to speak out based on how Vindman was treated. But that did not stop President Trump from attacking Vindman again today.
2: He will do a spectacular job, I have no doubt.
3: President Trump is lashing out at his former chief of staff after he publicly defended a prominent impeachment witness Trump fired, Lieutenant Colonel Alex Vindman.
4: Vindman was the guy that when we took him out of the
0: building, the building applauded.
3: The president making that claim as he attacked Kelly on Twitter, writing, When I terminated John Kelly, which I couldn't do fast enough, he knew full well that he was way over his head. He came in with a bang, went out with a whimper, but like so many exes, he misses the action and just can't keep his mouth shut. Trump is falsely claiming the retired Marine general has a military and legal obligation to stay quiet. As his press secretary says, she's disappointed Kelly is speaking out. I thought it was a little disingenuous. Um, It's interesting that he's starting
5: to poke his head out and speak a little bit more, just like John Bolton, as we're getting close to an election. As
3: Trump slams his longest serving chief of staff, he's welcoming back another former staffer with open arms. Hope Hicks is returning to the White House after nearly two years. Once the president's closest confidant, her homecoming includes a new title. Instead of communications director, Hicks will now be counselor to the president and report to Trump's son-in-law and senior advisor Jared Kushner, as sources say Trump wants more people he trusts around him. The president is also promoting another recently returned staffer who left under Kelly's reign. Johnny McEntee was forced out over a security clearance issue, but will now head the Office of Presidential Personnel. As one staffer returns, another is resigning. Sources tell CNN that Jesse Liu, the former U.S. attorney who headed the office that prosecuted Roger Stone, quit her job last night after Trump abruptly yanked her nomination for a top Treasury position. CNN is told the move was directly linked to Lou's old job. After he praised the Justice Department for intervening in Stone's sentencing recommendation, Trump said today he wished he'd picked Bill Barr as his attorney general sooner.
6: My life would have been a lot easier, but I
7: might have been less popular.
3: Jake, also in that interview today, the president suggested he might stop aides from listening in on his calls with foreign leaders, saying, quote, I may end the practice entirely. Now, he's repeatedly cited how many people were on his July call with the Ukrainian president as justification for why he did nothing wrong on that call. But we are told by sources that essentially he's become preoccupied with the idea that something he may say on a future call may leak as well.
1: All right, Kaitlin Collins, thank you so much. We should point out, of course, that General John Kelly has largely stayed quiet since leaving the Trump administration, though now he is going farther than he ever has before seemingly distressed at how President Trump and the White House have been attacking Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Vindman. At Drew University in New Jersey, President Trump's former White House chief of staff, retired Marine General John Kelly, told a crowd that Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Vindman was just following his training. The Atlantic magazine and the New Jersey Daily Record newspaper reporting that Kelly extolled Lieutenant Colonel Vindman, whom the president fired last week and had ignominiously escorted off White House grounds. The Atlantic reporting that Kelly described Vindman as having seen something, quote, questionable in the call, Vindman notifying his superiors and complying and telling the truth when subpoenaed by Congress. Said Kelly, quote, he did exactly what we teach them to do from cradle to grave. He went and told his boss what he just heard, adding, we teach them don't follow an illegal order. And if you're ever given one, you'll raise it to whoever gives it to you that this is an illegal order. And then tell your boss. On talks with North Korean dictator Kim Jong-un, Kelly said, quote, he will never give his nuclear weapons up. I never did think Kim would do anything other than play us for a while. And he did that fairly effectively. As secretary of the Department of Homeland Security, before he was chief of staff, Kelly was once in charge of executing the president's hardline immigration policies. But Wednesday, he said illegal border crossings are not as bad as the president says they are, and that a wall does not need to be built from, quote, sea to shining sea. Kelly criticized how Trump talks about undocumented immigrants. They're
7: rapists, and some, I assume, are good people.
1: Quote, They're not all rapists and they're not all murderers, Kelly said, and it's wrong to characterize them that way. I disagreed with the president a number of times. Kelly also criticized the commander-in-chief for intervening in the Navy decision to discipline Navy SEAL Eddie Gallagher, acquitted of war crime charges but convicted for illegally posing in a picture with a dead ISIS fighter's corpse. The president's intervention prompted the resignation of the Secretary of the Navy. Quote, the idea that the commander in chief intervened there, in my opinion, was exactly the wrong thing to do, Kelly said. Had I been there, I think I could have prevented it.
8: General Kelly is doing a fantastic
1: job. Last October, Kelly suggested he served as a guardrail against the president's worst instincts, having warned the president about picking an obsequious chief of staff as his successor.
4: I said, whatever you do, don't, don't hire a yes man, someone that's going to tell you uh, it won't tell you the truth. Don't do that, because if you do, I believe you'll be impeached.
1: The White House today pushed back on Kelly.
5: I was in the room with him when he actually backed the president on many of the things that he's now saying, you know, weren't great. I thought it was a little disingenuous.
1: No doubt. Their one point of potential agreement: disappointment in Kelly, but for very different reasons. "Quote: I'm disappointed in myself for leaving," Kelly said. But it was a killer. I mean, no joke. And a source close to General Kelly disputes White House Press Secretary Stephanie Grisham's suggestion that she was ever in the room when anything of importance was being discussed. Uh, let's talk about this, uh, Jensaki. Let me start with you. Uh, White House Press Secretary Grisham calling Kelly's comments uh, disingenuous. What do you think?
9: Of course she is, because she wants to delegitimize them. She's speaking on behalf of the president. I don't know how impactful it will be. I'm not sure what the John Kelly constituency is out there, uh, because for supporters of Donald Trump, he's a traitor. For Democrats, it's a little bit too little too late. So I don't know how much of an impact it will have. But either way... Um, you know, they don't want somebody out there who was close to the president, or right, in close in the inner circle, uh, questioning the president's uh, ability to uh, negotiate globally, ability to do his job, his naivete. I think that's some of the most damaging stuff that uh, General Kelly was saying.
1: And what do you make, uh, Jeremy, of, of his basic argument that he served as guardrails <coughs> and Mick Mulvaney, the
10: acting White House chief of staff, is basically anything goes. I mean, it's true. Um, it's true because uh, John Kelly was one of those guardrails at a time when there were several other guardrails, like Jim Mattis, for example, uh, like several other officials. Now we are at a point where the guardrails have essentially fallen away. And the president is, is especially uh, following his own instincts uh, at a time in his presidency, perhaps more than, more than ever before. Uh, Mick Mulvaney, uh, he has largely been uh, neutered already in his position. Uh, he is not. Uh, the strong chief of staff that John Kelly was at one point, not throughout his tenure, but at one point in he's his tenure. He's not even the chief of staff, he's the acting chief He's the acting staff. chief of staff. Um, and, and you have a series of officials around the president who, frankly, are more inclined to agree with the president, more inclined to be yes-men uh, than perhaps John Kelly was uh, during his tenure. David, you're shaking so, your head. So
1: much to unpack. Wow,
10: um, oh my God.
6: So, listen, I know this is, I'm speaking self-interest because both these gentlemen are friends of mine, but if I was picking teams, I'd pick Secretary Esper and Secretary Pompeo. Ten times out of ten, over Tillerson and Mattis, that mm-hmm. they are serving as guardrails. They are they are patriots. Mm-hmm. They've served downrange in combat. They've seen yes things. Men. They've done. They're not yes men. They are far from being yes men.
1: School. What about Kelly? I, I, what about General I, 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 Kelly? Listen,
6: that's... General Kelly's a great man, great soldier. Served his company, country nobly. He's a Marine, but, but he's but he's wrong, right? He's wrong. he's wrong. He's wrong in a lot of these things, right? So he's wrong. <laughs> but there's not no, no, the same no, no, kind of pushback. Hold on. Let's just go. What's the he wrong about? He's wrong about Vinman. Okay, there was no order here. The president didn't. So so military officers, right, have have an obligation and a duty, right, to, to you, you don't have to obey orders that are illegal, right? There's mm. no order here. The president didn't order Lieutenant Colonel Vindman to do anything, okay? He was on a call, he was a note taker on a call, right? If he thought there was something wrong, he could do what he did. He reported it up his chain of command. Mm. He also reported it outside of chain of command Breaking with military obligations. How did he it was, do it outside the? China because, China? because he went to other people who allegedly, right, the whistleblower and other people. Well, we don't we got, know that to be a fact. Well, we don't know to be absolutely the fact, but we do. I, there, there are sources, right, mm-hmm. that he reported outside his chain of command. And then I would just add this: another great soldier, Lieutenant General um, uh, Keith Kellogg, mm-hmm. right, distinguished serviceman, was on that call and didn't see anything wrong with it, didn't feel there was anything illegal. So so everybody's rushing that the counter-counter Vindman is some some hero here. That's great. The people reading The Atlantic and General Kelly's uh, you know, article in there today will view it that way, Well, Not most of America.
1: Uh, and, and we should also point out, you know, there is a long line now here of individuals who President Trump extolled as his generals and his team, his A-team, and when he started, who are now persona non grata, whether it is General Mattis or General Kelly or... Uh, H.R. McMaster Mm -hmm. or uh, Rex Tillerson, and it goes on and on.
11: Right, where you've seen these people who have worked for the administration, were picked by the president, who didn't, uh, who maybe internally pushed back here and there, but didn't publicly, and now once they're out of the administration, pushing back. And so it is notable what Kelly said, but again... It also appears as though uh, an attempt by Kelly that could be self-serving to distance himself from the administration now that he is no longer a part of it. Well,
1: what do you mean by self-serving? Why is it? Why why could it be seen as self-serving?
11: Well, because of the fact that he didn't mention these things or as many of the concerns that he had when he was within the administration, and now he is doing it outside of the administration uh, in order to to distance himself from it, rather than rather than. Um, you know, side with the president still.
1: Well, the argument would be, weighed um, that uh, these people were trying to do their patriotic duty and they had their arguments inside the White House instead of externally.
9: Well, but the notion that he went in there and didn't know what he was walking into is tough to believe. I mean, President Trump had been out there making racist comments, criticizing immigrants, criticizing entire swaths of people and races before he went in there. So now he's saying that he's outraged by his his positions or his approaches on immigration. That's a little, it doesn't sit well.
1: All right, everyone stick around. we got a lot more to talk about. And we have a lot of panel this show. Uh, we have some breaking news now, though. Attorney General Bill Barr just criticized President Trump. Believe it or not, what did he say? That's next. <laughs> Breaking news. Attorney General Bill Barr just criticized President Trump's tweets about the Justice Department in an interview with ABC News' Pierre Thomas that we just got a, a piece of.
7: To have public statements and tweets made about the department, uh, about uh, our people in the department, our, our men and women here, about cases pending in the department, and about judges before whom we have cases uh make it impossible uh for me to do my job and to assure the courts and the prosecutors in the in the department uh that we're doing our work with integrity. Not gonna be bullied or influenced by anybody. And I said at the time, whether it's Congress, newspaper, editorial boards, or the president, I'm gonna do what I think is right. And uh you know uh, the I think the the I cannot do my job here at the department uh, with a constant background commentary that that undercuts me.
1: That seemed aimed at one person in particular. This comes, of course, after that one person. President Trump tweeted calling the initial sentencing recommendation for his longtime friend Roger Stone disgraceful. After that tweet, the Justice Department released a new memo suggesting far less time than the initial recommendation Of seven to nine years. Let's discuss this. And Jeremy, Barr in this interview tells ABC News, um, I was going to recommend less time anyway. Then President Trump tweets this in the middle of the night. And essentially, Barr
10: says, and that makes me look bad. Right, right. Barr Barr is making the argument that we've heard many other administration officials make, which is that the president's tweets often undercut what they are trying to do. The difference in this case is that it's not a contradiction between the president and Barr. Uh, It's, in fact, Barr saying that the president agreeing with him publicly on Twitter before this decision is formally announced uh, undercuts his actions to do the exact same thing. It doesn't really answer the question, though, of why Bill Barr was reversing this decision by career prosecutors uh, to recommend a specific sentence. That's not something that typically happens here. And obviously, it's a high-profile case, and it's a case where it's somebody who was a longtime advisor to the president. So uh, Barr here is saying, the president didn't tell me to do this. It doesn't mean that Barr didn't do this because the president would have wanted him to. There are people, even Trump
1: critics, who have said, and we've been covering this since it happened, who have said, this was a very, very harsh sentence. It was within the sentencing recommendations. But for what he did, even though he was found guilty on seven charges, it's really on the steep end. Um, so uh, there is some credibility in Barr saying that he thought this was a little harsh.
11: Right. But the question is whether or not, as we just discussed, the the president's tweets and the president's uh, letting his, his thoughts be known influence the Justice Department. And, of course, Barr is denying that in this interview. But, again, uh, it's interesting also the response by Congress so far, which has been that Congress is offering a somewhat muddled response. Republicans, like Senator Graham, are saying that uh, it isn't appropriate for Trump to be tweeting this, uh, but they aren't necessarily going to bring Barr forward to answer any questions, and they aren't sure if they actually want to dive into this at all. And Mm -hmm. again, when the judge ultimately um, gives their sentence, then that could help Congress get around this.
1: And David, let me ask you, you, you are an advisor for the Trump campaign, you know the president well, do you think that it's possible that Barr would have given this interview without telling the White House he was going to do this and say this?
6: Uh, yeah, I believe. Yeah? <laughs> I think he probably could have given him a heads up that it's coming. But uh, uh, look, Bill Barr uh, is his own man. He, as he said, I'm not going to be bullied by the Congress, by the media, by the president, by anybody. It makes my job tougher. He's kind of saying to the president, look, Mr. President, I got your back. Just let me do my job. I got your back. You don't need to tweet and tell me what to do. I've got your back. What I do you think, think, think that's what he was saying. You, you know,
9: I think it's not just the tweets. The problem with that argument is that the lead prosecutor was also moved and nominated for a job at the Department of Treasury, which reportedly was because of concern about the period of time where the sentencing guidelines were going or the sentencing was going oh. to be determined. That's that's not just about tweets or that's oh. not just about oh, recommending it, different uh,
6: different. It, uh, it, it's a completely sentence. different prosecutorial view. Look, I've I've never been a prosecutor, but I've watched lots of lots of folks here on this network to have this debate and talk to my friends who are prosecutors and especially in high profile uh, political prosecutions. There is a lot of discussion that takes place as to exactly what the appropriate sentence should be from the attorney general on down in in these cases. And so I don't believe that there is anything magical about how it was was somewhat bungled uh, to, to, to Jake's point, seven to nine years for something that was. Probably should have been on the on the lower end, made it much easier to kind of blow that all up. But at the end of the day, yeah. the judge is still going to make the decision. Sure. So this the is judge, all, this the is judge all, who
1: President Trump has been attacking right, on Twitter right. is going to so, make the decision. And, and, it's, and, and that Roger Stone was... You know, it was um, uh, he had a but, gag order against her. Right? Well, so she had, she had posted right, an image of right. her within the cross. So, so
6: let's not forget the judge let's, makes a decision.
1: Let's also point out that the four prosecutors who are actually prosecuting <clears throat> the case, assistant attorney general, U.S. attorneys or, or attorneys general and others, assistant U.S. attorneys, um, resigned right. after this happened. They all resigned from the from the case.
10: And one of them resigned from the Justice Department completely. Right. And our colleagues are reporting that there is the possibility of additional walkouts mm-hmm. from the Justice Department from career federal prosecutors over this issue. So, again, you can argue whether or not this is a fair sentence or not. But the fact of the matter is that it's extremely unusual for the Justice Department to issue one memo one day recommending one sentence and then the next day saying, actually, never mind, scratch that. This is yeah. the orders from Washington, D.C. It, it, so and,
1: it's and, possible and, that this that this interview is aimed not just to President Trump, but also Justice Department sorry. employees yeah. to try to it, keep him I will say,
9: though, that watching this, it's it's. Same with Secretary Pompeo, how ludicrous it is to have these people going out and saying, you're you're being so harsh to my department when they are they are taking actions and mistreating their own employees at the same yeah. time. And that's well, the feeling within the thought.
6: So, so, so I'm just saying at the end of the day, the president could just pardon Roger Stone anyhow. Well, he could I have a then, then, in the teapot, right? He could have just waited. But He, he, uh, he, he,
1: he could have waited, sat and people then want says, him to. Done. People. Well, people want him to rather than the, the well, view. It's going to happen. So. The view from, okay. from uh, experts we've had is uh, go ahead and do that. Don't corrupt the sentencing right. uh, process. Right. Everyone, stick around. We've got more to talk about. Coming up, he's got billions along with snappy comebacks for the president's insults. But President Trump isn't the only one going after Michael Bloomberg right now. Stay with us.
12: president attacked me again this morning on Twitter. Thank you very much, Donald. Uh, he sees our poll numbers, and I think it's fair to say he is scared because he knows I have the record and the resources to defeat him.
1: That's Democratic presidential hopeful Michael Bloomberg uh, standing up to President Trump's attacks, fighting back in a way few Democrats have by taking increasingly personal jabs at the president at rallies and on Twitter. And as Bloomberg rises in the polls and looks likely to make the next debate stage... CNN's Jeff Zeleny takes a closer look now at the massive campaign fueling Bloomberg's climb, as well as the controversies about Bloomberg giving some Democratic voters pause.
12: I'm not afraid of Donald Trump, and he knows it.
1: Michael Bloomberg is
8: taking delight at suddenly being the center of attention in the Democratic presidential race.
12: That's why he keeps tweeting about me. Thank you, Donald. Keep sending it in. I love it
8: and trying to win the nomination, as it's never been done before.
12: Now, you don't see many presidential candidates here in Greensboro. Uh, They're spending all their time in South Carolina, but I think the voters here in North Carolina deserve just as much attention.
8: The former New York City mayor didn't just happen to be in the neighborhood. He breezed through North Carolina today, as early voting opened for the primary on March 3rd, also known as Super Tuesday. When he finally plunges into a race, he's already reshaping. The first true test of Bloomberg's candidacy comes that day, when voters in 14 states coast-to-coast weigh in. He spent nearly $130 million on Super Tuesday ads and $381 million overall, trying to make the point he's the strongest candidate to challenge President Trump. By an angry, out-of-control president. No matter where you live in America, Bloomberg is inescapable, at least on television. That has allowed him to shape his own narrative until now. He's suddenly on the defensive over the controversial stop-and-frisk policing policy in New York after an audio clip of a 2015 speech came to light, where Bloomberg argued one way to reduce violence was to throw minority kids up against the walls and frisk them.
12: I don't think those words reflect what uh, how I led the most diverse city in the nation. And uh, I apologized for the uh, practice and the pain that it caused. In three stops across North Carolina today,
8: he did not address it. Several voters we talked to who admire Bloomberg say they wished he would have and believe he must.
9: It's really an issue. And if he resolves it, then we can move on and get my vote.
8: Days before he jumped into the race last year, Bloomberg rejected his long embrace of the discriminatory stop-and-frisk policy. I realized back then I was wrong, and I'm sorry. But he's rarely addressed it since, hoping to move beyond through a series of high-profile endorsements from African-American members of Congress and big city mayors. Now, Bloomberg is also building a massive campaign battleship, Jake, some 2,400 employees so far. To give you some sense of scope there, that is more than the number of people who worked for Barack Obama at the end of his 2008 campaign. This is all part of the Bloomberg plan to overwhelm his Democratic rivals in hopes of showing that he's the strongest candidate to take on the man he's aching to run against. That is President Trump. But first, of course, that pesky Democratic primary.
1: Right. Jake? Uh, Jeff Zeleny, thanks so much. Uh, And let's discuss this. Uh, He is going to have some uh, questions to answer from uh, progressive and minority voters, especially when it comes to comments and the practice, not only of stop and frisk, but also the recently unearthed comments in which he seemed to defend the practice of redlining, which is shorthand is discrimination against African-Americans in in Mm -hmm. housing. Mm -hmm.
11: No, he definitely will. and, And the first chance that other candidates potentially will have to challenge him on this is Most likely the Nevada debate. He's only one poll away from reaching uh, the debate stage, which is next week. And and that the deadline for that is February 18th. If he does make that stage, Biden has already forecasted that he wants to have this discussion with him about his past comments on redlining. Of course, candidates like Biden and Sanders also have past comments that they've had to answer for. And now the fact that Bloomberg is getting more attention because he is rising in the polls, because he does look like this very big looming X factor on Super Tuesday in Super Tuesday states, uh, he is getting more scrutiny from the press from Mm -hmm. the other candidates.
1: He's getting a lot of uh, attention from President Trump, who is obviously an ardent uh, consumer of television (laughs) and must see his his omnipotent. uh, I'm sorry, um, uh, yeah, Uh, (laughs) omnipresent. Omnipresent. Must (laughs) see his omnipresent TV ads, which are everywhere. Every time you turn on the television, especially cable news, there is a Bloomberg ad. It doesn't matter the network. It doesn't matter the channel.
6: And and, and so. Uh, if money were dispositive in political elections, you'd have President Perot and Tom Steyer would be at the top of the polls right now. Right. So it, it, it's helpful, but it's not going to win the day, I, I think. It, it, and it may actually backfire in a party of progressives that's, that are that are kind of reeling about, you know, buying the presidency, buying the nomination. I think, you know, having having two white Republicans who are billionaires run for the you know, presidency of the United States is somewhat rich. Two two white Democrats. Oh, no. No. I mean, well, well, touche, right? Right. (laughs) Um, But... No, oh, you mean Bloomberg Yeah, yeah Bloomberg Bloomberg and, Trump. and Trump are
1: both Democrats and Republicans. Yeah, right. I wasn't even trying to touche yeah. you on that one. Um, so, you know, Blake Zaff, uh, who worked on the Obama campaign in New York, you must know him, tweeted today about how he sees Bloomberg using his money to manipulate politics. He pointed to a number of examples. One of them was an article uh, which says Bloomberg spent $4.5 million to elect Congressman Harley Rauta, $2.2 million to elect Congresswoman Haley Stevens, $2.2 million to elect uh, Congresswoman uh, Mikey Sherrill. And now all three are endorsing Bloomberg's campaign. It goes on and on talk about how he's been able to get money, uh, give money to community groups. And all of a sudden, those individuals endorse him and on and on.
9: I mean, let's give some of those members of Congress a little bit of credit. I mean, I think a lot of them are looking at the field and they're looking at who would play in their district and who they'd be safe to uh, endorse. So that's a bigger factor than I think, Blake, who I do know, uh, Mm -hmm. is is factoring in. Look, the the system of money in politics is totally broken. There's no question about that. But if we don't play by the game, we're going to lose, which means we should welcome the money of billionaires or millionaires or anyone who's going to give to Democrats. What is, inc- what is What Democrats are, are warming to Bloomberg about is the fact that he may spend $2 billion and have more money than Trump and spend more money what on progressives? social media. How
6: about the progressive wing of the party?
9: I-, I still think, David, beside the wing question, I think people in this country of different backgrounds feel like that may be what we need to do to win. Now, I do think he hasn't been on the stage. He's been running, essentially, with these great campaign ads. He
1: hasn't done interviews either. And he
9: hasn't done interviews. He hasn't been on stage. And Mm -hmm. how he responds to these questions and how he responds in the debate stage, I think, is going to be a huge factor for his longevity.
1: I think it's his resources. But I also think that Democrats think, Jeremy, that he is able to go after President Trump in a way that really bothers President Trump. There was one tweet today We know many of the same people in New York. Behind your back, they laugh at you and call you a carnival-barking clown. This is Bloomberg to Trump. They know you inherited a fortune and
10: squandered it with stupid deals and incompetence. And I have to say... That's mean. Yeah. That's a mean tweet. And it seems like a lot of Democrats are kind of enamored with the idea of someone who can get under Trump's skin, who can get in the mud with him and fight with him at the same level, New Yorker to New Yorker. Um, but whether that's ultimately the successful strategy in running against Trump, I'm not really sure. I mean, you had Republicans in the primary in 2016 trying to do exactly that Marco with Trump. Rubio. Marco Rubio, Ted Cruz. They tried to fling insults back, and it just didn't quite... It's not that it, the insults didn't work; it's that they weren't able to ding where Trump was, right? Yeah. So I, I don't know if that ultimately is a successful strategy, even though Democrats seem to be.
9: But that's, I ca- that right can't now. be, and I don't think it will be. I mean, his Super Bowl ad was on guns, right? Yeah. We've got to see more of that, I think, in order for him to.
1: Everyone, st- st- oh. go. Well, we're coming right back to the panel. More on breaking news ahead: the Attorney General slamming President Trump's tweets, which will no doubt get him tweeting. Uh, stay with us. Back with breaking news. Attorney General Bill Barr coming out and criticizing President Trump's tweets about the Justice Department, telling ABC News' Pierre Thomas that it makes it, quote, impossible for him to do his job. To have public statements and tweets made about the department.
7: Uh, about uh, our people in the department, our, our men and women here, about cases pending in the department, and about judges before whom we have cases, uh, make it impossible uh, for me to do my job and to assure the courts and the prosecutors in the in the department uh, that we're doing our work with integrity. I'm not gonna be bullied or influenced by anybody. And I said at the time, whether it's Congress, newspaper, editorial, Boards or the president. I'm going to do what I think is right, and uh, you know, uh, the I think the the I cannot do my job here at the department uh, with a constant background commentary that that undercuts me.
1: When asked if he expects President Trump to react to this criticism, Barr said he hopes he will, and hopes the president will respect it. CNN senior justice correspondent Evan Perez joins me now. And Evan, there are some people who are interpreting this as Barr taking a shot at the president. You don't see it that way, though. You see this as, Mr. President, I got your back.
2: No, yeah, exactly. And look, I think it is news, the fact that the attorney general is even saying something a little bit critical of the president. He's criticizing the tweets, which, by the way, the president has a lot of people who criticize his tweets. Some of his friends, some of the people who voted to acquit him, criticize his tweets. He's okay with that. Uh, what the attorney general did in this interview, look, you look at him as sort of a magician, right? A sleight of hand. What he did in this interview is that he said that the president did not order him to do this on the Roger Stone case, to overturn the prosecutors on the Roger Stone case. And he's also saying that he did the right thing. He's standing by his decision uh, there's no regret over exactly how this went down, which was a disaster for the Justice Department. So uh, I think what the attorney general is trying to do here is is throw out a little bit of red meat to say, uh, look, we don't like the tweets, but he is not stepping back at all from what happened in the last few days, which has really shaken the department.
1: And also, uh, as avenues reported, the four prosecutors right. uh, who were prosecuting Stone withdrew from the case after the senior leadership of the Justice Department. Withdrew their recommendation and undermined them. Sources tell you that more prosecutors are, are considering resigning. Do you think any of that is part of what motivated Barr to say this?
2: Well, look, I do think that some of that has gotten back to to headquarters of the Justice Department. I think uh, we know of a number of prosecutors who've told friends that they're ready to walk. Uh, They want to see how the department behaves in other cases. And so I I do think that that is something that weighed here with the department. They needed to say something. But again, Jake, uh, it's a little bit of a magic show happening here where the department is and the, the attorney general is making sure everyone and the president knows he is still on the reservation. He's not gone rogue. He's going to criticize the tweets, but there is nothing wrong with what happened this week.
1: All right, Evan Perez, thank you so much. Thanks. Coming up, who needs the Russians? What some South Carolina voters are being encouraged to do to mess with that state's upcoming Democratic primary. Stay with us. In our 2020 lead today, it's being called Operation Chaos, Republicans actively interfering in the Democratic Party primary process by purposely voting for the weakest Democrat. And it's mischief actively being encouraged by President Trump. Here he is earlier this week.
8: Because you have crossovers in primaries, don't you? So I hear a lot of Republicans tomorrow will vote
2: for the weakest candidate possible of the Democrats.
1: That was President Trump in New Hampshire. But the effort appears even bigger in South Carolina, as CNN's Lauren Fox reports.
5: Conservatives in South Carolina pushing for Republican voters to disrupt the upcoming Democratic primary.
2: You know, I guess you could call it uh, meddling.
5: One grassroots organizer, Christopher Sullivan, calling it, quote, Operation Chaos, a nod to Rush Limbaugh's 2008 effort to encourage Republicans to vote in Democratic primaries and keep Hillary Clinton in the race longer to hurt Barack Obama.
2: I would love to see uh, the Democrats, uh, whoever wins the South Carolina Democrat primary for everybody else to accuse him of having stolen the election because he was actually elected with Republican support and therefore prolong the uh, chaos and the disruption.
5: It's also the latest obstacle for Joe Biden, who needs a victory in South Carolina to bolster his campaign.
12: Our votes count too. Biden was expected to win South Carolina.
9: We wanted to disrupt what was expected.
5: South Carolina has an open primary, allowing eligible voters to cast ballots in either party's primary. Conservatives have complained for years it's resulted in Democrats boosting moderate Republicans in the state. With South Carolina's Republican presidential primary canceled this year, Conservative leader Karen Martin said she saw an opportunity to finally give Democrats a dose of their own medicine. We thought,
9: aha, what would happen if we made a grassroots statewide effort to cross over and vote for one candidate in the Democratic primary.
5: Martin is pushing for voters to back one candidate, Bernie Sanders. Others say they're leaving it up to the voters.
9: Just for the sake of optics, it would be great to be able to contrast the uh, ideology of an avowed socialist against a capitalist.
5: The campaigns have caught the attention of Biden's team, including surrogate and state senator Marlon Kimson. He says Republicans in the state fear Joe Biden in a one-on-one matchup
7: with Trump. They are trying to interfere with this election to choose the weakest candidate uh, because they know without cheating Donald Trump will not be reelected. And
5: of if- course, of course, Jake, we don't know how many Republican voters are actually going to participate in this effort or whether or not they're going to make an impact. The South Carolina State Party is saying they are not endorsing this effort. Jake.
1: Always a lot of intrigue in the Palmetto State. Lauren Fox, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Just days after being awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom, radio host Rush Limbaugh, who has a decades-long record of bigotry against blacks, women, and the LGBTQ community, attacked Democratic presidential candidate Pete Buttigieg because Buttigieg is gay.
7: How's this to a 37-year-old gay guy kissing his husband on stage next to Mr. Man Donald Trump? What's going to happen there? There may be some Democrats who think that's exactly what we need to do, Rush. Get a gay guy kissing his husband on stage, you ram it down Trump's throat, and beat him in a, in a general election. Really? <laughs>
12: having fun envisioning that.
1: Buttigieg has not responded yet. Former Vice President Joe Biden defended Buttigieg, saying, Buttigieg, who served in the Navy in Afghanistan, has honor and courage. We should point out Buttigieg is married to one man. I don't even know what number spouse Limbaugh is up to. Coming up next, proof that experience and name recognition may not matter in the 2020 race. Eight months, two weeks, six days. A lot can happen between now and November 3rd, Election Day. And as CNN's Tom Foreman reports, frontrunner status and a household name, that does not always guarantee a victory.
4: For Democrats, the 2008 contest started with our fifth most memorable moment. Hillary Clinton jumping in with the best odds ever for a female contender. She's the former first lady.
3: She is a well-respected senator she is married to bill clinton
0: and i'm in it to win it
4: for republicans another seasoned pro was emerging john mccain a war hero with years in the senate i know who i am and what i want to do what neither of them could have foreseen is our fourth most memorable moment the explosive rise of a far less experienced contender
2: people call me alabama they call me yo mama Uh, But the name's Obama.
0: He's a candidate
12: running for president.
4: Barack Obama electrified young voters and shocked the old guard.
12: You were a corporate lawyer sitting on the board of Walmart.
4: I was fighting these fights. By the time Clinton realized her race was in trouble, the nomination was effectively his. And McCain was waiting, along with the third most memorable moment.
7: No, no, no. Not God bless America. God damn America.
4: Obama was soon being hammered over his ties to a controversial family pastor and an old acquaintance.
10: Barack Obama and domestic terrorist Bill Ayers, friends.
4: Still, he weathered those storms and began surging again, triggering the second most memorable moment. Desperate to improve in the polls, McCain made a wildly unorthodox choice for a running mate Governor Sarah Palin of the great state of Alaska. Palin drew praise from conservatives.
9: You know they say the difference between a hockey mom and a pit bull? Lipstick.
4: And scorn from liberals. (laughs) But mostly, she and McCain failed to deliver the votes the party needed. And in the end, the number one most memorable moment is one the country will never forget. Barack Obama, 47 years old, will become the president-elect of the United
1: States. Tom Foreman, CNN, Washington. The new season of Race for the White House premieres Sunday at 9 p.m. only on CNN. Our coverage on CNN continues right now. When
0: you work, you work next level. When you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number Smart Beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep Next Level.